Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the ISE podcast. Um, really pleased today to be joined by the now Dr. Jane Clark. Some of you will know Jane from her work at uh, current role at AMS. Also, she has a long history in graduate recruitment in organisations like Barclays and has, and has long been what I would call a thought leader on our industry. So really pleased to be welcoming Jane to our podcast. And we're going to be talking about her new thesis that's just been. Is it published, Jane? What stage is it at? Yeah, no, thank you, Stephen, and thank you so much uh, for having me as well. So um, I was able to defend my thesis a few weeks ago, so this is really, really hot off the press. What will happen is that there has actually been uh, a two-year embargo put on the thesis um, publication, uh, which means that it won't be, it goes into the British Library, and then after two years, um, it will then be released so people can read it. The reason for that is because we want to publish papers from it, uh, mainly academic or academic journals. But what I'm really, really happy to do is um, throughout the course of that year is to start to share some more of that content with the ISE community, because there are so many different facets, I think, that has come out of the thesis that we absolutely won't have time to go through today. Which, But I also hope will be of huge interest um, to some of you know, our early careers practitioners. Fantastic. Well, Jane, why don't you just give us, for, for those that maybe don't know you quite so well, why don't you just give us a bit of an idea into your background and what sort of what it was that actually, um, as well as your working life, decided for some bizarre reason to do a PhD on top of doing, um, you know, doing demanding full time, full time jobs. So um, for many of you uh, who know me, um, you know that I've been in working in, in early careers for for a number of years. And I'm also really passionate about it. It's uh, it's really a passion that, that really has never gone away it's so multifaceted when I sort of think about the the last 20 years when I've been in it every year has been very very different with with very very different challenges to face and I think I, I kind of really got to the point where in my career as well I'm very much a believer of uh, the Linda Grattan uh, 100 year um, life where we all have an opportunity to have three or four different careers I'm also very much for upskilling and reskilling and I really think that I've got to a point in my career where I, I needed to go back to university. I needed to go back and, and, and study again. And the reason for choosing, I suppose, this subject. So I actually did a, a DBA, um, which for those of you who don't know what that is, is is actually a doctorate in business administration. Um, it is a doctorate for people like myself. So um, it, it, it's like an executive doctorate. So you have to have been working in industry like myself for the past 10 to 15 years in a thought leadership role. And the idea of a DBA, it is more, um, more for a practitioner like myself. So you are thinking about a world challenge that you have seen within your work. And what you are then doing is solving that problem or solving that challenge by theory, which is a little bit different from, from a PhD. However, um, I had excellent, excellent academics who really helped me in my supervisory team. And I think what I'm really proud about what I did, I didn't, didn't only just um, solve a problem with, uh, with theory, but I've actually added to theory contribution as well. So I've actually brought new theory um, into talent management in terms of uh, talent pools and, and graduates. So obviously, I'm, I'm obviously really proud of that. So the title was, uh, let me see if I get this right, Quid Pro Quo, The Value and Future of Graduate Programmes Through the Lens of Talent Management. So do you want to give us a quick sort of a summary, I guess, an overview of actually what of, of what it was that you were you were researching and focusing on? Yeah, so I suppose one of the questions that I had when I was running very big graduate development programmes was really the, the purpose of them. 
I think people probably from a broader perspective that don't know very much about early careers or, or about graduate programs, they're actually far more complex than what they really look like, I think, from, from the outset. And then I started to then think about the question a little bit deeper. So rather than the purpose of it, what was the value of graduate development programs? Why do we do them? And not just thinking at it from an organisational point of view. So what are the benefits of the organisation? But what I also did was looked at it from an individual level, so from a graduate level, so the micro level, the meso level of, the, of HR and the line managers, and then much more of, of, of a macro level. So really thinking about the organisation itself. And I think one of the things that um, that has been sort of really missing in, in, in the academic literature, but actually I think probably in our own thinking when we put these graduate programmes together, are the factors, the internal and the external factors that surround these graduate programmes that can really impact the outcomes of them as well. And it's, it's that sort of thing that I think is, is, is missed. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. So I looked at it via the psychological contract, so as, as an individual and um, mutual expectations and beliefs. You know, what are people expecting from them? What are the line managers expecting? What are the graduates expecting from it? And really looking at it through a journey. So looking at it at the beginning, talking to graduates that were currently on programme, and then also talking to students that were currently um, had finished the programme, and mainly looking at their reflections on what really happened to them and what they felt uh, the value was as well. Fantastic. So obviously, what was it, 75,000 words you were, you were telling me in terms of length? That's, a, that's an, awful lot of, um, an awful lot of writing and, and content. You mentioned at the start that actually there were some key themes that you did want to sort of share on this on this podcast. What were those sort of the, the, those key findings? What, what stood out most for you? So, so to put all, all of this into context, um, and I and I actually have to give a big shout out and a thank you to Henry Davis for this because I went to speak at his one of his conferences, one of one of six communications conferences about my research. It was very very early doors and three organisations came out of that conference uh, wanting to, to help. Um, I think that's one of the things that, um, that I found the hardest was actually finding organisations to participate in the research. Even though I've got a big network, I think that there is, and I, I, I get it, I think people are worried about their data and where, where it's going to go. And so I was really fortunate that the organisations um, that, 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 that came up came from very, very different sectors. So there was uh, a tech company, uh, there was an investment management company, and there was also a utilities company. So what that really gave me was really rich data and really rich kind of context in some of the themes that, that came out. So when we talk about are my themes, you know, are they general or can you generalise them? Well, yes, you can actually, because, you know, the, the organisations that participated were, were, were very, very different from each other. I think one of the things that the key findings for me or the theme that I, I found interesting was future leaders. So, so, so we hear graduate programmes categorised as future leaders. I know some organisations are starting to move away from that, but that doesn't mean to say that when you're on campus that line managers still talk about these graduate programmes as future leaders when they are talking to prospective graduates that are wanting to join their organisation. And I think this came out as really one of the shortfalls of the of the graduate programs. Now, it could have been a reality in the 1960s when the graduate program was, was first set up. And I think that probably back then, when you think about careers, they're very, very different 
to the way that we see careers today in a very, very contemporary career system. So not so, so hierarchical uh, as what they used to be. But when you think about um, the future leaders term, it's a social construct. So a social construct is, is an idea that has been created and accepted by people in society. So a really good example of that would be uh, like class distinctions. That's a social construct. And future leaders is a social construct. The problem with that is that it means different things to different people. Uh, but we still talk about it as, as kind of a, a casual term, which means it can bring so many different expectations into that, which, which is obviously a, you know, a problem. And also try, trying to spot future leaders at the inception stage. It's really hard. It's really tricky. Um, and some people will come back and say, yeah, but you've got all this rigorous recruitment and the assessment processes and our assessment centre will be able to dictate this, this and this. But it's not really true. And this is what came out of the research in terms of graduate programmes. It's not probably really until after year two, year three, that, that you can start to kind of really, really sort of see these traits. So what happens is that organisations believe that they are hiring future leaders. Then they are telling the graduate that they're a future leader. So they're believing that they're a future leader because that's what they're being told. And it's not really until the graduate roll off, the graduate programme roll off, when we know that it's so difficult to workforce plan um, and what roles you're going to be um, having available at the end of the programme, that all of a sudden the expectations of being a future leader suddenly don't become a reality and sometimes get quite squashed. So I think one of the things that I would really like to see going forward is the future leader label, you know, kind of being dropped slightly if it isn't really a future leader. If you can't sit there and tell somebody what their eight to ten year career trajectory is going to be to get them to that level, which I think is really difficult these days, then I don't believe really that these are future leader programmes as we would have known them perhaps in their in their inception, you know, sort of in, in the 1960s. But I don't know whether you agree, Stephen, with that or you have any views on future leader labels. Yes, well, I do actually. It's interesting what you said about the leadership piece. So if I go back to my previous role, you know, big four professional services. I remember we we took leadership out of the selection criteria, um, or in terms of one of the competencies, sort of strengths that we we were looking for. And it wasn't because we didn't expect to get you know future senior managers, directors, partners even out of the program. It was just, I agree with you. It's it's so difficult to actually spot. And if you actually apply the lens of diversity, too often some of the proxies I think that are used for leadership actually aren't necessarily a good indicator of, of you know, leadership in, a, in an organisational environment in, in the future. So I always find it really a really troublesome concept to actually be recruiting for. So actually we took it out and then worked on the basis that actually if you if you hire a really good cohort of people and have a really good programme, actually over that period by the time people come to the end of the program those with the leadership potential will be starting to emerge and you can then start to pull them onto 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 different programs and you're right and it's also that expectation around well i'm on this program so therefore there's an expectation the program will slot me into that particular role whereas actually is there's um sure we both had the same experience in organizations that's not the way it works <laughs> you know the um it's tough if you want to climb the organisational hierarchy. You know, it, um, I don't mean this in a sort of a doggy dog kind of, you know, pleasant competitive nature, but but it is. You know, it's um, 
you know people have to deliver and perform well and those are the people that get promoted so yes i do have um i i, I think i come from the same place that you are on this that it's um Yes, it's really difficult to spot it and then really difficult to manage and meet those expect expectations. When I was interviewing some of the, the, the stakeholders in, in, in the research to really start to probe about future leader, one of them sort of said, actually, I, I think it's changed slightly. So it used to be um, future leader of people, but but it's now future leader of projects or future leader of process. So that that's what we now mean. And it was really interesting because, you know, that, that that's what you mean, but you haven't told anybody. <laughs> That, that it's changed it, it's the it's the signaling so so the formation of a psychological contract on a on a graduate program it starts way 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 before even even application as you know it, it can start many years before it's it's the your interaction with with the brand that can be the start of the formation of a psychological contract before you even get to university you get to the career fairs you start to meet people there are so many touch points along the way that will give graduates clues of what they think the programme is going to be and, and the future leaders and this expectations that get built up and built up and built up. And that was, you know, sort of, again, very, very interesting of really where does where did that kind of start? Where does the expectation really start? And I think the future leader piece is sort of something that needs to be looked at and either got rid of or, or explained a little further with what we mean by future leaders in a, in a temporary career system. I think the other thing as well, this came out of sort of institutional theory in terms of, of graduate programmes and the behaviour. And it's a very long word, so we don't need to talk about that today. But it's what, what, what it kind of came out to say is graduate programmes are really homogenous in nature. So they're all the same, you know. And when you look at organisations, again, you're looking through the external and the internal factors, looking through that, that type of lens that impacts certain industries and sectors. It's so different. And but organisations imitate each other. So their programmes look exactly the same. And when I started to, again, to delve through sort of some of the data after the interviews that I'd run, it really seemed that that came out that this approach, this mimicking what other people are doing was a real hindrance to some organisations rather than a help. And I know where it comes from because I've, I've been in this situation when I worked in-house. It is the questions you get asked by the business stakeholders what is your competitor doing? So-and-so's just won an award. We need to do the same as them. And it's very easy to, 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 to when you talk to um, the, the really senior business stakeholders about what good looks like and why you, you need to do it. But a question hasn't been asked to those organisations that have won these awards or does it has it worked for you? It, you may have won an award around it from an external kind of viewpoint. But when you look operationally at the processes, the policies and everything that, that, that surrounds it, and it really kind of felt with some of these um, these organisations that they were trying to fit a square peg in a round hole because they'd done all of this research in, in the competitor landscape. They were trying to be the same as everybody else. Um, and what I really felt was that when I asked about future and future predictions, it really felt definitely from one organisation that they really wanted to pull away from rotations. They really wanted to pull away from the two years. They wanted it to be kind of much more agile moving forward. Uh, and this thing about mimicking everybody else. I, I suppose the moral of the story, and I've been, um, when I speak to senior executives and they're telling me how great so-and-so is, my response to that is, but if your proposition is so great, you don't, you shouldn't care about what everybody else is doing because what you're doing is going to shine above everybody else's because it's going to be different and there are reasons why it's different. So I think I suppose that's my another very kind call to action to say, Please don't be like everybody else. 
you need to kind of really think about your own organization in its own context, thinking about those external factors that can sometimes really contribute to some of the outcomes that sometimes can impact um, graduate programs and really work around something that is going to work for you rather than trying to look like everybody else. Yes, that's really interesting. It's funny, that reminds me of a time when um, I had a conversation, again, in my previous job with um, with a senior partner. It was quite early on when I'd, um, I was heading up the team at, at EY, and the partner said to me, we were talking about the competitive landscape and so-and-so. It was a, yeah, it was a good conversation. And, and he did say one point, he said, of course, I don't really care what the competition are doing. Just because they're doing it doesn't mean it's right for us. So I compare about the competitive nature of what, what he was saying, but actually we'll only do it if it's right for this organisation and delivers the results that, that we need. That's always stuck in my mind because it was also it was quite refreshing and made me think, well, actually, yes, almost the external perception isn't really important. What's really important is are we delivering the talent and growing the talent the business needs? End of story, really. And you don't have to do what somebody else is doing in order to deliver that. It's really interesting to the pandemic, I think, that actually, so, you know, some of the challenges that we face, like how do you do induction and training in a pandemic? How do you work virtually? That's because there isn't a prescriptive answer out there. Actually, people haven't been able to say, well, let me look at what X is doing and we'll copy that because there isn't an X to look at. So actually, we've had a lot of, I've seen this a lot of conversation coming across the industry saying, well, how are you doing it? Where are you up to? And in a sense, that level of collaboration is how people have been able to take a few more risks, actually, and be a bit braver, which I think has been a, been a good thing. Is that something that, in a sense, you're asking for as organisations to be a bit braver or people in an industry to you know, not kind of risk everything on, on, you know, on the roulette table, but to actually take some more risks around what we do, do think about doing things differently, don't just do it because that's the way it's, it's always been done. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, again, to your point, when you look at the pandemic, um, I don't know whether you saw the, the 2020 um, LinkedIn report. I, I found it really interesting that the number of, of Generation Z learners had actually increased by two and a half t- times compared to the year before. I mean, I thought that they'd all be watching Netflix and doing much more interesting stuff. But actually, you know, they, they were learning. And the real driver around that was career growth. Um, and over 76% of Gen Z employees believe that learning is a key to, to a successful career. So we already know that they are already doing this sort of stuff because I, I don't think it really it really adds as much as what perhaps what it used to in the past. For me, it's much more what I, where I think this is going to go to is much more self-led rather than cohort-led. And what in my research, one of the is actually the tech organisation had a, a very different idea to, to kind of their learning. So what they did was that they actually gave every graduate a budget to spend uh, on their learning. And then they also gave them a, a mentor, obviously, to help them spend that money. Uh, and what that meant was that each of them had an individual plan of, of, of how they were going to be able um, to get up to speed very quickly. And that went down so well. Um, for example, the software engineers were able to go to some of the conferences that they wanted to go to in terms of in terms of tech. And there were also some soft skills that they felt um, that their curriculums at universities haven't really addressed as much. Whereas the business leadership cohorts had already done much of the soft skills, but they wanted to kind of hone in on something else. I think that that is a that's a really good idea. And what I'm really hoping moving forward is that this is where graduate programs will go to individual basis rather than the class of and cheat dipping and putting everybody through the same kind of curriculum. 
I totally understand that, that, that some of it in terms of regulatory organisations, they have to be the same in terms of all the compliance policies, all of that. I totally get that, you know, that have, that could be done as a cohort. But I'm thinking much more as the individual itself of what they're getting out of it, rather than pretending that everybody is similar and treating everybody similar um, just because that they've all joined it at the same time. What, what other talent pipeline do you do you treat like that? Probably not very many. And then when you sort of think about the future, it's it's all about upskill, reskill. Um, we know that jobs today don't last as long as what they used to, um, and it's up to all of us to upskill and reskill. You know, we have to perhaps help and teach graduates that they're going to lose their jobs. So how then are they going to recreate themselves to do something else? Actually, they're already doing it. So they're already kind of one step ahead, which I think is really interesting. Let's not put shackles and frameworks around something really good that is already happening. How can organisations really, really support that kind of individualism and that self-led style that we're now seeing from, from Gen Z? Yes, and it's interesting. I see some of that starting to come through in some of the things that we measure around employers wanting people to have more self-awareness, which I often equate as actually if you're self-aware, you know what you need to learn. So therefore, you then go and try and plug those up. There's a couple of things that I've talked about lockdown and watching things. I watched, um, I think it was called Inside Bill's Brain on, on Netflix quite early in lockdown, but it was all about Bill Gates. And it was fascinating. But one of the things that struck me, and I had read this about before, is just how much he reads his PA gives him whenever he's traveling he has a tote bag and it is full of books I was reading about um uh, Jamie Dinneman was talking about you know JP Morgan what he thinks makes help made him successful he said I just read he said I read five newspapers a day that's where my ideas and and my antennae comes from and I think sometimes you think we've just got to do 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 and without taking and you've got to squeeze it in you might have to get up early to do it but yeah that that quest for knowledge and I look back I think yes I've run graduate programs the people that have done well Actually, but even when we started thinking about this concept, were those that actually, yeah, they went out of their way to think, oh, what do I need to get better at? Then find somebody who was good at it and go and learn from them, almost regardless of what the program was was telling them to learn. Mm. And do you think that's a skill that we can we can develop more in in people as they come through programs? Do you think that's something that can actually be, I guess, taught, or is that the kind of just you know people have that personal sense of agency, or or they don't, I guess. Yeah, I, I think it's both. I think when you look back, so, so I talked to you a little bit about about the purpose, and then I moved my question to the value. Going, to, you know, sort of back to the purpose of why you know organisations hire graduates. It's because of the fresh ideas, the thinking, the drive. You know, they're so driven, and, and they know that they're always going to do a very good job. And what really came out of the research was that you get so much more in that sense from a graduate than what you may do from from a normal kind of experience lateral hire which I thought was really interesting. It's that kind of energy, it's that it's that passion. And it kind of leads me on to my, my third theme as well around measurement. So my question, why, why do you hire, hire graduates? You know, and, and, and obviously like all of us, you, you know, you sort of get the, get the usual kind of patter of the, oh, I've, you know, been, you know, I've kind of said this millions of times before, so I'm gonna give you the kind of the usual spin. And then you start to kind of unpick that slightly. And it is all around, the fresh ideas and the fresh thinking that, that graduates give to organisations and, and challenging sort of the status quo, which is great. That's value. And so when you think about measurement, so how do you measure that then? Oh, um, retention. Right. So, so, so you're hiring somebody on, on fresh ideas and what they're going to and the impact they're going to have to your organisation, but you're measuring them on how long they're staying with you. It's a bit like buying a racing car because you want to go really fast but you're measuring it on its fuel consumption. 
you know, what, what, what's the difference? So, so, so we go back and I just say, well, what about some examples of value? And in one of the organizations, there was a, a graduate who really, really got into coding. He, he just he just really enjoyed it. And so they gave him a little bit of time out to, to work a little bit more. He actually came back and he created and developed the organization's hot desking app. It was something that had been missing from the organization for a while. And a graduate on the program had, had a couple of few months, came back and he created that. What an amazing legacy to leave an organization. You know, it, why do you care how long that person has stayed with you? That is a huge impact that you have had. How do you measure that? Oh, it's all too difficult. How can it be? Because it's we've got so much data. I think it looks into then the, the performance management of the graduates. We're measuring them on all the wrong things, which is why I don't think that, that the true value of a graduate, I think it, it, it's always been overlooked. Retention is a really old thing, but I, I totally understand it's one of the things that it's, it's easy to measure. But then when you look back to a very, very early article in the Harvard Business, Business Review, it's kind of 1964, same argument was, was happening then. You know, after this conundrum of, of after four years of a, of a graduate joining an organization, 50% of them were leaving, either to go to another organization or, or, or to go to back to school, back, back to the classroom. Um, and we do the same measure in, you know, in 2020. And funny enough, it's still 50%, 60%. Who cares? <laughs> what does it matter? It is the impact that that person has had and the experience that you've given them. Because there's something else. If you've given them a great experience, they will come back to you. They'll be a boomerang. Have you measured that? You know, oh, no, that's too difficult. So I kind of think we've got a real opportunity here to put the spotlight back on the graduate and the impact that these graduates have on organisations, because it is huge. We're just measuring the wrong thing. That's a great, great line of thought, isn't it? Yes, because how many, how do you genuinely measure performance? And if it's retention, how do you know you're keeping the right people? I was, um, I was again, I, I chatted some days ago talking about it, um, measuring performance, one cohort. So how do you work out if one cohort one year is better than the next year? He said, well, you can't because the measures are always relative if you use the basics of appraisal system. So that cohort is always self-referenced. So what might be a good grade one year might not be the same the previous year. So I was talking about, you know, just the, the fallacy of some of these measures that the numbers might be there, but actually they don't really get to the heart of what great looks like. And that stuff around boomerangs, I think some of the really impressive employer brand work I've seen. Um, over recent years. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's it's also, you know, true to the organisation, but it is actually around that this isn't a career for life choice. It, it highlights boomerangs and highlights where you may go afterwards, but it's actually, this is the right choice for now. This is the best choice to make in the immediate horizon. And then, you know, we see where it goes because, again, I'm, I think I'm probably a bit more attuned to this from a professional services background. People often leave and become clients. So alumni mm. are really important because actually, I mean, you think about you know, the McKinsey model, never worked with a McKinsey model, but, you know, a lot of that is driven by, you know, really strong alumni have a strong sense still connection back to their, their previous organisation and, and how powerful that that is. Mm. And I guess we don't apply the same measures to experienced hires, really, in terms of retention. I'm trying to think if I've ever come across experienced hire conversations. So, you know, everybody who hired this year has stayed for X number of years. I just, I just don't remember thinking those kind of things. It's, it's how long people stay in a certain role and whether they're 
I guess, productive or that they add value in that in that sense? But also, I think, um, and this again that came out of my research, it, it depends what role you have, because some roles still do have traditional hierarchies um, and they will stay longer. And now I do remember, Stephen, this was a few years ago now, at the very start of my my doctoral studies, I stood up at the ISC Development Conference and I talked about the contemporary career system and the protean career. So that's all around being self-driven, about um, flitting from one role to the other, to moving around, to creating your own, you know, your, your own space. So rather than an organisation owning you, you own yourself and you, you know, and this is what, what we're going to see going forward. And someone sat in the front row and at the very end with the questions um, said, I, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Well, three and a half years later, and some data and analytics suggest that actually I was right. There are certain careers like software engineering where they won't stay with you for more than two years because it looks bad on the CV. People in those, those careers are chasing the next tech um, and the next tech stack. So if you're not up with the next tech stack, then watch out because they'll go somewhere else where that new tech is being used and they may come back to you later on. And that's what came out. So we talk about retention, but we're, we also don't overlay the context of whether that is a more of a contemporary career than perhaps a traditional career like finance or law or where I think that there are still there's still that ladder and still that hierarchy. But that's what that was the pattern that, that, that came out. But those, those graduates who are on programs in the more traditional career areas, you know, they were going to stay longer. That was their intention to the other ones, which were, you know, more of a kind of a business leadership type graduate program or software engineering or tech, they're not going to stay with you. And so, again, it's not how long they stay, it's the impact that that, that, that program has or the individual has had on your organisation whilst they've been with you is what we should now be measuring. That's interesting. It's kind of something I was reading yesterday was, I think, saying a similar thing, which is that actually we're better off thinking about somebody's fit for an organization rather than necessarily not occupation or because organizations in the same space can be quite different roles can be quite different within organizations so it's it's also understanding your fit with that particular organization and the way it way it works not necessarily thinking that yes all all law firms are the same or all tech firms are the same i'm sure there are some tech firms that are still pretty hierarchy probably not so many as there used to be but there will be some that are still still hierarchical i am i guess yeah. So I suppose you're, you're a living embodiment of what you're saying. I mean, embarking on a PhD is no mean feat. What is it actually like doing it? I mean, the concept of writing something that's 75,000 words is, um, I think, mind-blowing to anybody who hasn't actually um, embarked on such a, such a project. Have you really enjoyed doing it? Is it, is it something that, yeah, that's been a great experience? Yeah, I've, I've loved every second of it. I have to say, it's the, it's the hardest thing I have ever done. Um, and, and I, uh, most people know me and I'm a, you know, computer finisher. I do not give up. But I have to say that at certain points, this, this really, really tested my resilience. It, it's interesting because going into it, I thought I'd try and get it done within X amount of years. Doctorates aren't like that at all. Um, there are so many different factors that come into it. And, and luck has to, has to come into it as well. You, you know, you could go out and do a whole data set and come back and, and find nothing. It is true perseverance, I think, you know, in finishing it and getting it to the finish line and actually coming up with something that, that, that you're proud of. It has to be something that you're really passionate about. And I think that's one of the things that really drove me. I mean, obviously, I've got very polished grammar now and I can write. So, 
which I couldn't before. My my brain was ticking at, at three million miles an hour. I, I needed to slow down. I think that was the hardest thing, slowing down and reading, reading an ac academic journal, which, you know, is, is, is hard. I think I've learned not just to slow down, but I know when ideas are going to come. Sitting at a desk for 18 hours a day is, is, is not going to not going to get the doctorate you're, you're going to be wanting. It's going out. It's um, talking to people about it that, that will listen to you. It's um, going out for runs. It's, it's going outside to have a think and a reflect. And for me, that's when the aha moments came. Um, sometimes at four o'clock in the morning when you're completely rested, all of a sudden three, three theories knitted together for me and I quickly wrote it all down. You know, the aha moment kind of comes. But it's so rewarding. And when I put the, the last full stop on, on my thesis, I actually felt quite sad that it was done rather than just thinking, thank goodness, you know, <laughs> that that's over. And then it was obviously preparing for the Viber, which again is, you know, you never know what you're going to get asked. You, you, you get your 40 questions that, that you can print off the, the internet. But what the examiners are really looking for is that you've written it. And so they could ask you anything. And I think the feedback that came out of um, out of my, my defence, I mean, it lasted under an hour, which is really good. It was my passion that came through. And I think if you're really passionate about a subject, you know, not everyone is going to believe what, what, what I've written. And, you know, they're, they're, but what I'm really hoping is that there's some things that people will adopt because at the end of the day, you know, this is sustainability. We talk about sustainable workforces and graduate development is part of that. You know, these people are our, are our future. And I think most of us in are in a really good position, in, in a very fortunate position, actually, to create that, to make a really good start on somebody's working life. I think it's a real privilege. Um, and if there are a few things that come out of the research that people are going to find helpful and adopt, make it a better experience, then I've done my job. And is there anything, just to kind of wrap up, is there kind of a, a one thing that you would like to say um, or a thought to get over to, to the audience who will be tuning into this podcast um, around actually, I guess, where you think in summation the industry should be moving, thinking to the future, not just coming out of the pandemic, but actually to really, I guess, shift the way that we, we do think about student programmes and how we, we sort of nurture and bring through people into those early jobs and really give them that, because that, surely this is... The win is for the economy, the win is for the organisations we work with, and the win is fundamentally also for the individual as well. So I, I'm sure it's a really tough ask trying to boil you all down your 75,000 words into, into kind of one sentence. But is there that kind of one thing you think people should really be starting to think about for the future? I think it's stop, stop looking at what's been done in the past. Just be brave. Think about people as individuals. There's a lot of stuff that came out of the research that that is old because we still haven't fixed it. One of those things is bridging academia and employers. You know, it, it seems that one thinks that, that they should be doing something and, and the other one thinks that they should be doing something else. And, you know, like, I mean, I, obviously I, I went back to university. You can see the bridge even further because you're a student, you know, at, at an institution, but you're also still working as well. And coming out with, you know, the theoretical contributions versus the practical implications. As a practitioner, I know what's important, but that may not be as important to institutions and the theory. And I think it's, it's bringing it together. I think my prediction is that we will see many more partnerships with employers and universities really working together because at the moment, this gap, this bridge is still being blamed and it just, it just has to come together. And I think it's treating graduates as individuals, not as a cohort. How can you do that going forward? They're already doing it themselves. How can we help them even further?
Fantastic, Jane. That's a great note to end it on. Jane, I always love our conversations and really pleased we've actually had one that's um, been properly recorded um, um, for one. So, and I'm sure lots of the themes that you've discussed in the detailing research we'll come back to um, in time and, and maybe get them into our blogs. Maybe we should do another podcast a little bit in the future. Is there, um, how can people get hold of you if they want to just kind of, you know, talk to you a bit more or, or explore some of the, um, the themes that you're thinking about working on? So um, I'm on LinkedIn. So um, so please do um, contact me via there. Obviously, I'm a member of the ISE as well. I am hoping to uh, to publish um, some more. There, there are so many multifaceted areas of the thesis, which I'm hoping that you will find as interesting as me. You know, being a practitioner for, for nearly 20 years and, and, and I've still learned a whole load of stuff. And I'm really keen to, to share as much as what I can with everybody else. So I definitely will be uh, publishing and, and, and writing more for my thesis. So obviously still, still look out for that. But any questions, any themes at all that you want to hear more about, please do let me know. And Stephen, you know, we can work together as well. I'm very happy then to share that out to the rest of the ISC community if that's of interest for everybody else. That's brilliant, Jane. And thanks for taking the time out to, to talk today. Much appreciated. And congratulations again. I have to say congratulations. It is a, it is a really um, achievement in its just own right, um, getting that PH done and those, those doctor initials. So fantastic. Well done, Jane. Really pleased for you. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for having me. Um, and that's the end of the podcast. Um, so thanks to everybody for listening to this one. Please uh, visit the ISC webcast. Um, we're doing um, podcasts and webinars all the time, exploring some of the subjects we've talked about already in more detail, but also a whole range of other things important to our industry. Thank you.